0: We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, the other day, I had um, a class appointment. I'm taking some seminary classes online and uh, through Western Seminary, and uh, I have four other guys that I'm participating in this one particular class with, and they all live in the northwest area. Um, and miraculously, through the, uh, the unbelievable, miraculous nature of technology, we can all Get together via Skype and take this course together and listen to the instructor all at the same time. Uh, and it's, it's still kind of mind boggling to me that we're able to do that. Um, one of the obstacles to do this, of course, is the time zone because uh, the course is, is in, or the, the, the professor is in Portland and we're all in different states and in some different time zones and whatnot. And so the course was scheduled for Wednesday at 1 o'clock, Portland time which I easily converted to 2 o'clock Alaska time. <laughs> right? Wrong. <laughs> uh, I adjusted easily for the uh, one-hour-a-time differential, but I went the wrong direction with it. And uh, the consequence was I wasn't even in my office when the course began. And so I came back about 12.30 and uh, was sitting at my desk and kind of surprised that I got this phone call at 12.30 when I wasn't expecting it until 2. And uh, why is my professor, you know, ringing me up right now? And then as the call, you know, kind of shows the different people that are online and I realize all of the other guys are there too, then it hit, oh, I can't believe I did this. And I picked up the line and gave a real sheepish hello. (laughs) And the really nice thing about Skype is only one person can yell at you at a time and no one can lay hands on you. So that was good. Uh, The guys were very gracious and uh, I apologized and and finished the remaining 30 minutes with them on the call and uh, and it all worked out uh, okay. But I want to use that particular incident to kind of talk about a concept that we find here in this particular passage. And that is, there was a precise moment in time when that course was to take place, when that meeting was to take place. Uh, And it didn't matter where you were in the world. It didn't matter what time zone you were in. It didn't matter if the region that you, you live in recognizes daylight savings or not. It didn't matter if a windstorm knocked out the power and changed your clock that particular day. There was a precise moment in time when that class was to take place, and it was our responsibility to adjust and to be ready for it. And that is a concept that we run into here in Ecclesiastes 3, the concept of an appointed time. And that's what Solomon uh, basically introduces this, this chapter with. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, There is a time, or literally an appointed time, for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Um, And and even to hear it out loud, you can sort of hear the rhythm and the movement uh, of the poem as it's written. Um, I wish I had the voice of James Earl Jones because I could do it a little more justice, but I don't. I just have this one. That's all I've got. Um, and I'm sure most of us are going to have you know, the birds stuck in our head for the rest of the day anyways, right? Um, I don't know what the personal beliefs were of the band members, highly suspect, but one of the things that we see here is that Solomon's beautiful description of the movements of life and the seasons of life resonates with people across all spectrums of human existence and experience. Um, and we remember... In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is describing things the way they are. Uh, he is, uh, this beautiful poem that he constructs here is descriptive, not prescriptive. He's describing life as we find it, life on the human plane, life as it really is. As we've, we've talked about that phrase, that's just the way it is. That's what Solomon is acknowledging, uh, the human plane, life as we find it. And he makes this observation here up front in these first nine verses. The way I would say it is this. We are caught within time. We're caught within time. Solomon uses a literary device here in this particular poem known as mirrorism. I'm not sure if you've heard this before. But mirrorism is where you use, it's a figure of speech where you use two polar extremes or two opposites uh, not just to communicate the extreme ends of an idea, but the everything in between. In other words, if I were, you might say something like, She worked from sun up to sundown. Or, He looked high and low for his headlamp. Okay? <laughs> or, or, The glory of God fills heaven and earth. And the idea is not just that the truth is there in its ultimate extremes, but that it's, it's in all of the middle. The glory of God fills not just heaven and earth, but all, all matters of life and existence and experience. And so, again, the purpose is to communicate a sense of the whole. One other thing that you should know about this particular poem as he's constructed here is it is carefully and intricately put together. It is quite a composition and arrangement. It contains lots of different poetic devices such as parallelism, merism, chiasm, uh, all kinds of different things. Uh, and I don't have time to go into all of them this morning, and I couldn't do all of them justice. But the illustration or the way I'd like to relate it to you is like a knitting project. Do we have any knitters in the room? Their hands are busy knitting right now. They can't raise them. Yeah. A few of you. All right. First service must be the knitting service. There's a lot more of them first. Service. All on this side, by the way. Interesting right brain, left brain thing going on there. Um, I don't knit. But I watch an awful lot of it in our house because Amy knits quite often. And I'll do the best I can to to make this illustration accurate here. But as I understand it, there really are only two stitches. There's a knit and a purl, right? And within that, there's all kinds of variations of those stitches. And you can use a knit and a purl to create a different effect in your project. So you can say, knit two, purl two. I understand that would make a rib. Am I right so far? okay i 'm going to get off track here before long, but we 'll start there uh, and I understand that you can take a knit and a pearl, you, or you can knit uh, the back side of a stitch or the front side of a stitch to create a different effect. You can change your your pattern and your arrangement to create a cable effect or a rib or all kinds of different things in your knitting project right So far, okay, uh, The same thing is true with poetry, and what Solomon does here is he uses all kinds of patterns to communicate something to us, not just with his words, but in the arrangement of the text. And so he communicates by using negative illustrations and positive illustrations. He pairs them together in a certain way to bolster his point. He arranges them in uh, what we would call a chiastic structure in some parts of this, where it gives emphasis to the middle. And this is the point where he wants us to get. All kinds of carefully knit-together purposes to create an overall meaning in this particular text. And the point that all of them point to, all of them show, is he's trying to give us a sense of the whole, totality, the entire human experience, everything there is an appointed time for. That's, uh, in all of the arrangement that he's knit into this, that is what he is trying to achieve. He tells us that there is a God-ordered appointment for everything that happens, even injustice, even war, even death. There is a precise moment in time when it has been scheduled. And that's what Solomon is communicating to us here in this poem. Um, I think another thing that we sense in this as we read it is that there is a cadence to life. There is a, uh, one event that leads to the next. One stage of life rolls into the next. One season rolls into the next. One war is followed by peace, and then it's followed by the next war. There is a, a movement to life. It's not static. It doesn't hold still, and you can't make it hold still. It has a certain cadence to it that God has knit into it. And we are caught within some of those movements. Um, to talk about cadence here again, it's kind of like you know when somebody gets playing a real good, good song going, an Irish jig or something like that, and there's a beat, there's a cadence to it. You can't help but to clap or to stomp your feet or nod or twitch or something. You, know, you can't help but to almost bodily respond to, to what you're hearing. And similarly, there is there is a beat and a cadence to life. And one of the things that's hard about it is sometimes we sort of have to dance to a tune that's not of our own making. And that's just the way it is. That's the way life is. Derek Kidner, who is kind of an expert on what we call the um, Old Testament wisdom books, some of the, the um, poetic books, such as Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms, uh, he describes this... And sort of the movements of this particular passage is kaleidoscopic, like looking through a kaleidoscope that's just constantly turning and revolving, and all of these images changing, and all of them beautiful, and all of them maturing until God makes them ultimately beautiful. And I thought that was a pretty good image. I think, however, many of us are uncomfortable with change. Anybody want to confess that and own it? Do you like change? I think we're kind of resistant to certain changes, especially some seasons in life. Uh, We resist them. We don't want them to come upon us. Uh, But as much as we're resistant to some changes, I think we would all have to acknowledge that a life that was completely static and frozen and had no deviation would be torture, right? Movies are made about this Groundhog's Day, The Truman Show. We all know that that's not satisfying either. As much as we might not like certain changes, we don't want life to be static. Do you remember the curse on C.S. Lewis's Narnia? Do you remember what it was? It was always winter and never Christmas. I think they should put that on the bottom of the welcome sign to Fairbanks. Welcome to Fairbanks. It's always winter. Never Christmas. Welcome. Uh There's a certain grace and mercy to seasons in life, isn't there? Or just just to the natural seasons. We want winter to end. We look forward to spring, even though we know it will bring seasonal allergies and mosquitoes and whatever else. We'll take that because right now it's cold. Or not today, but it's been cold. And then we'll long for summer to get out and to play and enjoy this beautiful place that God has made. And we'll wear ourselves out, but we're not done yet. We'll go out and we'll enter the fall and we'll do our hunting and our last-minute fishing. And we'll love that and we'll just wring our bodies out. We'll be absolutely exhausted and then we'll look forward to winter again because we get to hunker down. Not everybody. (laughs) That's how I feel. But there is a certain grace and mercy to changing seasons, isn't there? And we can appreciate that. Uh, But I think we would all acknowledge that we really don't like it when change is imposed upon us when we have no say, when we have no ability to resist it. When it's imposed upon us, that makes us uncomfortable. And I think that's what Solomon acknowledges here too. Even though there's a subtle beauty about it and an enjoyment to it, there's a sense of powerlessness to these appointed times as well. And I think that's the rub that he basically highlights here. And that brings him back to this question that he continues to ask that we've already looked at. What does, in verse 9, what does the worker gain from his toil? If things are just changing and one season leads into the next, what what possible gain will there be? What I build today will disintegrate tomorrow. How will I get ahead? And he goes on to say in verse 10, I have seen the burden God has laid on man. And so, yes, we are caught within time. There's a cadence to it, and we might enjoy some aspects of it, but the real rub is that we can't control it. It's a tune not of our making. We just have to dance to it, and that's just the way that it is. Uh, Solomon is not saying that there's a randomness to everything, but in fact, I think as we read it, we get this sense that there's a divine order. There is a purpose. There's a schedule on which God has ordered this world. Uh, And the difficulty, again, is that we're not the ones entering the appointments. God is. And as much as we make our own plans and we have a certain freedom and ability to make choice in life, we know that ultimately uh, our plans are subject to God's approval. Proverbs 16.9 says this perhaps better than anywhere else in all of Scripture. In his heart, a man plans his course, but what? But the Lord determines his steps. And there's that tension. And so Ecclesiastes 3 really, I think, introduces us to God's sovereignty over time. Not just to the cosmos, or the seasons, or the days, or the hours, but the very moments and movements of our life. And that's not just true in Ecclesiastes, that's not just Solomon's observation, but throughout the scriptures we find this to be true as well. Psalm 139.16 says, "My eyes saw, "...your eyes saw my unformed body." All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Already in God's day timer. And we see this in the life of Christ as well. Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, in the fullness of time, a really rich phrase that appears throughout Scripture, in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman. There is a scheduled appointment for that. We're told uh, uh, by Jesus himself, at uh, you remember the miracle at Cana of Galilee, when he's at the wedding, they run out of wine, and his public ministry has not yet begun. And Mary, his mother, comes to him and tries to involve him in this, because she's aware that he can do something about it. And she brings it to his attention, and his response is, woman, my time has not yet come. There was an appointed time for him to reveal his, his glory and his divinity, and that wasn't it just yet. In Acts 17:26 the apostle Paul speaks of this. He says he says from one man, he being God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the earth, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Even in Fairbanks where it's always winter and never Christmas. God has set these times in place. These are appointed times and in verse 11 he says he has made everything beautiful in its time ah well wouldn't that be a nice place to stop but Solomon's honest he's a truth teller and he's telling us as it is he's telling us the way it really is he goes on to say he has also set eternity in the hearts of men yet they can't fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so here Solomon introduces us to the tension that our earthly existence is filled with these appointed times, that there's a cadence to life and we can't control it. But even more than that, the problem is that we can conceive of eternity. We can conceive of eternity, but we're caught within the here and now. In other words, we can see this context that God has placed us in. Even our myopic view of life as it is gives us a sense of purpose and design and pattern and order. And that God is doing something in history. But we can't see what all it is. We only have this very small square of our own life with which to look at it. And we can't back up far enough to see the whole project. A.W. Tozer has said it this way, to be made for eternity and forced to dwell in time is for mankind a tragedy of huge proportions. All within us cries for life and permanence and everything around us reminds us of mortality and change. Isn't that well said? That's why you should read your Tozer, by the way. I would illustrate it this way. The other day I was going out to my truck and I had an appointment that I was going to and I was running late and I had pressed my auto start, but it didn't start. So I'm thinking it's out there running, warming, you know, the whole bit. We've all been there. I get into it. It's its not warm, but I've got to go or I'm going to be late. And so I i pull out of here, throw the defrost on full, and I'm heading down the, uh, the driveway onto Farmer's Loop Road and after a few minutes, the blanket of snow that was on the hood blows up over the windshield, and you all know what happens next, right? It freezes over and glazes over completely, and I can't see anything. But I've got my defrost on full, and so there begins to be a little ribbon of clarity at the bottom of the windshield. You're laughing because you've been there, right? And so I begin to drive like this. I'm crouched down looking beside my steering wheel through this ribbon, I know Farmer's Loop Road pretty good and I'm basically just driving and I'm staring at the white line because I know if I can just stay close to that, I'll be okay. And I think I'm doing all right until someone starts honking at me. And I don't know what I did, uh, but I realized I guess it's time to pull over and acknowledge my limitations and simply be late. And so I pulled over and let the car warm up and finally I got a little more than a ribbon and off I went. And I think that's a good picture of, of what it's like to be caught in time. You know, where I'm looking out and seeing this white line. I know the road goes on. I know there's more ahead. I know that there's a purpose and a design to the way this road is and the way that it goes. But I can't see it all. I can only see I can only see this. My limited vantage point. And that's what life is like for us. We can conceive of eternity. We can conceive of what's beyond. We know there's purpose and order and design to things. We have a sense of that. We just have to look at the world around us and we can see it. But it's hard to make sense of all of it. We're not satisfied with just this limited or temporal existence. We want more. Our hearts resonate with eternity, not with finiteness. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons that mankind has a love affair with technology. Because we think it, it kind of alleviates that tension that we feel. It allows us to feel more competent and more capable. And I think uh, even at times it makes us feel more godlike than what we are, which is human. We fight against mortality. So we're a plane flight from any destination, right? Or maybe two plane flights. We're a phone call away from anyone in the world. We can text whatever we wish to say to somebody at any particular time and the message is sent and delivered and when it's appropriate for them to read it, they will. So we can always communicate and express what's on our hearts. Um, We can not only take our phone with us wherever we want to be constantly available to anyone. We could even take video with us. So now we can see them face to face and they can see us. And we really like this. And what it does is it creates for us this illusion that we are omnipresent. All places at once, available to all people at all times. And the problem that we all feel with this is that we weren't made for that. We're finite. We cannot be everywhere. I read a good quote here a while back that says, He who is available to everyone isn't much good to anyone. Uh, Bilbo said it pretty good in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings he says I feel thin like butter spread over too much toast and I think when we overreach beyond our finiteness we run into that and we feel that stress and that strain and we do harm to our bodies because God hasn't made us to be that broad and that far and that wide he's made us for moments and for times He has also said eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So this is the tension, the tension of human existence, to have a sense of eternity, a sense of God's purpose, a sense of something more, and yet to be caught in time. What's the conclusion that Solomon comes to? Well, it might surprise you, but he says this, we can have confidence in God, how did Solomon get there? Look in verses 12. This is, I mean, See if I'm right here. He says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him whatever has already been excuse me whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and god will call the past to account i don't know about you but i find his conclusion really unexpected after he so beautifully expressed this tension that we all feel about being caught in time and having a sense of eternity and being frustrated by that constantly what can we gain in this life Then he seems to come to this conclusion, we can have confidence in God. Instead of despairing, we find this remarkable faith statement by Solomon. In a sense, it's his dissatisfaction with life on the human plane that leads him to have a quiet confidence that God has everything well in hand. And we might expect him to go the other way with it. Instead, I think he says we need to trust in God both for this earthly life and for the life to come. And so, some of the advice he gives us, real practical stuff, enjoy the common life. Enjoy the common life now, that's what I would call it. He says, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is what? This is the gift of God. That's a gift from God, not waste, not spurious. It's a gift, and it's from God. But you and I know another thing too here. We know that not everybody can truly enjoy this. Not everybody can enjoy, enjoy just the eating and the drinking and, and the work of life because the ability to do so recognizes that it's a gift from God. And that's the crux of the matter. The person here who feels this tension that he's mentioned in 11 but instead despairs and said there can't be a God. I don't see order and rhythm to life. I don't see a beautiful cadence. I don't see a purpose. I don't see a design. I just see chaos. Therefore there must be no God. Can't truly enjoy the advice given here to just eat and drink and find satisfaction in work because they know what all it means is that life is ticking away. They are just killing time before theirs runs out. And it's not satisfying. But for the believer, for the person who has trusted in God, we really can enjoy the common life right now, can't we? We can enjoy a good meal. We can enjoy a good ginger ale, even if it's a little on the ginger side. We can enjoy good company with people around the table. We can enjoy good work even when it doesn't go just right and the project is imperfect. Because God has it all well in hand. And so we can enjoy the common life because we know that God has got the cosmos all figured out. And so I think the second piece of it, first of all, enjoy the common life now, but the second piece is trust that God is in control. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it, God does it so that men will revere him not run from him but revere him whatever is has already or whatever is has already been and whatever whatever ha- excuse me whatever will be has been before and God will call the past to account and so all of this honesty about life as it is basically leads Solomon to believe by faith in a good and a gracious God And it leads him to believe that God has a plan for this world and for his people in it. And it it leads him to confidently trust in God's program even though he can't see all of the movements of it. He sees the mystery of life, but instead of that taking him to atheism, it takes him to theism. And while it might surprise us and kind of sound strange the conclusion that he comes to, the wisdom of Solomon turns out to be true, doesn't it? In fact, if I were to synthesize it in one statement, I would say it this way. Your your title this morning is The Taunting of Time, right? I would say this. The taunting of time should bring us to the end of ourselves and cause us to trust in God. And what you and I should rejoice in is the vantage point in history that we have. Amen? We live on this side of the cross. We know that God has intervened in time, that there was a set appointment and it was about Jesus coming to this earth and dying on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. That was an appointed time. Solomon believed by faith that such a time might come, that God had his program in plan, that he had his plans for this world in order, but he couldn't see it. We get to look back and see it. We are incredibly blessed to have the vantage point that we have. Galatians 4.4, 4, I've already read this, but it says, When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, He remarked that His time had not yet come. And then the scripture goes on to tell us in Romans 5.6, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And Jesus also rose at just the right time, didn't he? Three days later, just as the prophets had foretold. And so again, the taunting of time, I think, should bring us to the end of ourselves and cause us to trust in God. Solomon could see it from a blurred vantage point because of the wisdom of God. He could trust that God had things well in place. You and I can look back from an unobscured vantage point and see that God has so ordered these things in time so as to redeem mankind for himself his plan was made perfect in Jesus that all who would trust in him would have their sins forgiven and be placed in the family of God and enjoy peace with God and enjoy the wonderful pleasures of this life as the gift of God the way we view time is really going to differ and there's only two ways to look at it. Some are going to see it as a gift and some are going to see it as a curse. And Tozer has summarized that perhaps better than anyone else. He says for those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. But for the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. Isn't that great? Even though it sounds like a cat. <laughs> The way we view time will have everything to do with the way we view God. Do we trust Him? Have you placed your faith in Him? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? Are you holding on to your sins? Or have you given them over to Christ? If you have questions about that after the service, I'd love to talk to you about it, and I'll remain afterwards. Would you pray with me? Father, time is an amazing thing. I confess, it it eludes me. I'm grateful for it because if it didn't exist, everything would happen all at once, and I don't think I could handle that. Thank you for appointing time, all seasons. Thank you for the confidence that we can have that you're in control. When life has a cadence and a rhythm to it that isn't, the beat we might particularly like, may we be reminded that there is a God who has everything well in hand, demonstrated in Jesus. Father, for those who have not trusted in Him as their Savior, may they do so. May the seasons of their life bring them to the end of themselves, that they would see they need to trust in You. Father, bring men and women to Yourself. Redeem them. Give them forgiveness and peace with you so they can enjoy this life as you intended it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.